coming up on this episode of the Work Not Work Show. It was not hard because both of us really enjoyed learning. And neither of us are afraid of mistakes because we made just about every mistake there was to make. But that's okay. So neither of us actually knew anything at all about the publishing industry. And I think that was our salvation. Uh, We designed the company as if it was a software company. And so we used all of the same practices that we talked about in Pragmatic Programmer when we were creating the company. So everything was automated. uh, Everything had tests. I mean, the rule was, if you ever found yourself doing anything more than twice, then it had to be automated. That's Dave Thomas, co-founder and publisher emeritus of The Pragmatic Bookshelf. In this, the second part of a three-part in-depth interview with Dave, we start with Dave's professional path, first crossing that of Andy Hunt, with whom he would go on to co-author the landmark books The Pragmatic Programmer, Programming Ruby, and Agile Web Development with Rails. In the first part of this three-part interview, we talked with Dave about his early influences and his formal education at Imperial College in London, England. We also learned about his early professional career and the events leading up to his later work as an author and publisher. In this, the second part of the interview, we pick up the story when Dave first met Andy Hunt. Dave and Andy co-founded The Pragmatic Bookshelf after they had already written and published books with Addison Wesley. We learn about Dave and Andy's motivations for starting the bookshelf, the trials and tribulations of getting it up and running, and what the future holds for publishing in general and the printed book. Dave recently retired from the bookshelf but remains involved as publisher emeritus and is still keenly interested in the overall objective of the bookshelf, which is simply to make programmers better. Dave, let's turn the clock back a bit and talk about the early days when you first met Andy Hunt, shortly after you moved to the United States. Together you wrote your first book, The Pragmatic Programmer. What was it that motivated you to do that, and how did you find that experience? It's my wife's fault. Oh. Uh, <laughs> no, what happened was that we were doing, uh, we started working on a project uh, together, and uh, we got on well. We as in you and Andy, or we as in you and your wife? No, me, me and Andy, sorry. Okay. We, Andy and I were, um, we had a mutual friend. Andy went to college with him, and I worked with him uh, when he came across to England for a while. And he had, he was working for a large credit and debit card company. And they had a dedicated switch that was switching their debit card traffic. And it was costing them some ridiculous amount every year in maintenance fees. So this guy said to his boss, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to replace that switch and I'm going to make it software based. And then uh, we won't have to pay these fees anymore. So the boss said, okay, do it, but make sure you do it before the next payment comes due. So at this point, he calls me up out of the blue and says, hey, I've got a really fun project for you. (laughs) And so I turn up and I start looking at it and I think, yeah, we can do this, but I can't do it on my own. So I say, I can't do this on my own. And he said, oh, I got another friend I know. And so he called up Andy. And then Andy and I spent the next six months or so locked into something about the size of a broom closet with no air conditioning in Atlanta. So we got to know each other pretty well. You either get married or kill each other. Basically, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, And we we didn't kill each other. So by the end of that, we kind of said, well, it's kind of fun. 
you know, let's look around for other stuff to do. So we started working on, you know, different projects. And we went through a variety of things. A lot of our projects were kind of like bailing out teams in trouble. So we'd go into a team, and typically the trouble was, like, mind-numbingly obvious. You know, you find yourself saying things like, maybe you should test that before you ship it, you know. Or we went into one place where they had, I think it was like 15 people working on some software, and it was a very complicated build uh, involving lots of tools. And we actually, as an exercise, went through and asked every single person to build the software, and no two versions of the software were the same. Mm-hmm. And so we talked to them about automation, this kind of stuff. So we had this like litany of, of things that we would say to these teams. And after a while, frankly, it got boring. Uh, so we thought what we'd do is we'd write down a list of some of the things that we wanted to say to these teams. And then we could kind of like hand them that as like a, a, a zero to 60 kind of start off. And then we could step in and do the fine tuning. And so this list kind of started off as, you know, I can't remember how we did it even. And it kind of grew and grew over time. And at one point, my wife said, you know, you should make a book out of that. I was going to say that the word pragmatic seems to be forming in the mist here. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. So so we were like, oh, don't be silly. No one will want this. And she kept pushing. And so one day we said, well, how are we going to find out if this is any good or not? So we came up with this really devious plan. Uh, We chose what we thought would be the best book publisher in our industry at the time was Addison Wesley. And we sent them what we had, assuming that they would reject it. Because when they rejected it, they would tell us why. And that would mean we would then know how to improve it and make it into something real. So this was a conscious plan to sort of de- Absolutely. To, to, de- yeah. to, de- to debug the text in effect. Exactly. And they, they messed it up for us by accepting it. Yeah, I know. Don't you so, hate it when that happens? Finished it about a year later and uh, shipped it off to them, and they printed it. And we were really surprised, uh, to be honest, because from our point of view, it was really just a kind of folksy introduction to the kind of stuff that we think about. And it just seemed to have touched a nerve somewhere because it, it got pretty successful, which was nice. The Pragmatic Programmers is also a business you started with Andy Hunt around the same time. What was the nature of the pragmatic programmers, the business, as opposed to the book? 90% was development or process consulting. So either writing code or helping other people to get their written code working or get it, to get it written more efficiently or effectively. Is that, is that business still around today? No, not really. And that's because the, the other side of the business kind of took over. Around about 2002... There was a real crash in software development consulting. Budgets were like non-existent and work was getting hard to find. And so we thought, well, what's kind of counter-cyclical? And uh, one of the things we came up with was this idea of producing small focused books that would help teams get better. So if a team couldn't afford to bring in a consultant, they could afford, you know, 30 bucks for a book. And so we wrote the first two of the starter kit books, which were version control and unit testing. And we published those. And then Mike Clark came along and said, hey, I'd really like to write the third one of those. So he wrote the automation book. And at that time, we'd already published Pragmatic Programmer. Sorry, we'd already written Pragmatic Programmer and the first edition of the Ruby book. 
And both of those were published through Addison Wesley. Mm -hmm. But in both cases, we did pretty much all of the pre-production stuff. So we did the layout, we did the indexing, uh, we did the typesetting, uh, we did, you know, basically the whole, the whole lot. I was intrigued with that because that's traditionally the role of the publisher. I mean, you su- supply them a raw text and they do all of that. So how is it that you convinced them that, that you wanted to do that instead? Well, it was a number of things. First of all, we have code in our books. And the traditional way of creating that was to use something like Microsoft Word to create your, your text. And you would cut and paste the code from the source file into your Word document. And then you would send that off to them, and then they would take your Word document and they would convert it into something like FrameMaker and use that to do the layout. So your code at this point had been orphaned twice on the way to being printed. And if you want to make a change, then ultimately the only place that change matters is in FrameMaker. So you would send them instructions on how to change your code in their FrameMaker document. And to us, that just sounded really stupid because we wanted to be able to test code all the way up to production. So as we were getting the book ready to go to print, we still wanted to be able to run the unit tests on the code that's in the book. So we wrote a real simple system that would allow you to embed commands into the text of the book to say, at this point, go off and fetch this source file and show me the lines between these two markers. And it would embed them back into the book. Backing up a little bit is that I'm trying to imagine this conversation between you, I mean, a couple of, if I can call you upstarts, having a conversation with, you know, Addison Wesley, a publisher that presumably had been around for years, if not decades, that you were telling them that, they're jo- that they weren't doing their job properly. I'm just no, trying, no, to, no. I, I'm just trying no, to get a sense of yeah, how that conversation... We were, yeah, we weren't saying that. I don't think we were quite that rude. Well, no, no, um, no. But I mean, you know, you know what I'm saying is that at some point, did they try and play the, you know, guys, we've, we've been at this for a while card and, or were they genuinely interested in, in trying to do this better? I think it was more that they didn't really care because actually a publisher's job is not getting books ready for production. A publisher's job is selling them. And that's really their, their entire focus. All right. They don't particularly care how you get to the point of having a book on a bookshelf. They just want to get the books back off the bookshelf and into people's pockets. Right. So for them, that was not a major stumbling block. I mean, there are certain publishers who had templates set up to make their life easier so that you, know, you would go and they would actually give you a Microsoft Word template that you had to follow. And you know, all the headings had a particular, whatever they call it, style or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that would make their import into FrameMaker easier. But Addison Wesley didn't really care. For them, the cost of conversion was a fixed cost. And if that happened to be zero, okay, that's just as, you know, a smaller fixed cost than most. So they, 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 I don't remember them being particularly fussy. I mean, we had to work. The production guy, it was really great. And he gave us the specs, uh, the technical specs of the um, stuff we had to send them. We had to send them a postscript file. And it had to have, you know, certain kinds of color space and certain gradient definitions and all this kind of stuff. And so uh, he worked with us to make sure that our files were compliant, effectively with, with their printing. But apart from that, it w- there wasn't really a big fight. 
But all along, you were learning about how this process worked, and and that was going to be useful to you down the road. But before we get to that, you've worked with with Andy on a lot of projects over the years, up until, I guess, you retiring from Pragmatic, which we'll be talking about in a few minutes. Can you describe your professional relationship with Andy? Was it more a question of seeing the world the same way, or did you have complementary skills, or what was it exactly that has allowed you to work as close with him over the years as you have? We see many things the same way, and we see some things diametrically opposite to each other, which I think is why we've been able to work together. Because I think if you have two people that basically are are clones of each other when it comes to how things happen, A, that gets really boring, and B, I don't think there's much produced from it because, you know, everything's in agreement and it's all, yeah, that's, you know, every day's happy. I think that one of the things that is good is that we share a philosophy, but at the same time, we diverge quite a lot on what's important and we diverge on where we're interested. So, for example, I've always been far more interested in the programming side than he has. He is more interested in the people side than I am. And in terms of the business I've always been more interested in the technical side of the business, not just computer technical, but also like the accounting side and legal structures and this kind of stuff. And he is better at the the marketing side and the relationship side. So he dealt with all of the, the actual printers and distributors and this kind of stuff. So the kind of, you know, like I say, we, we share a philosophy, but we differ quite a lot in terms of implementation of that philosophy. It's sort of the Wozniak-Jobs dynamic by the way you've described it. I guess, yeah. I wouldn't, you know, put ourselves anywhere close to that. But yes, I mean, I think in terms of the, the split and in terms of the fact that, you know, we, we both followed different arcs to get to the same point. Yeah, I, I would go with that. So just moving along, uh, a few years after the publication of The Pragmatic Programmer, you formed The Pragmatic Bookshelf again with Andy. What was it that made you feel you wanted to be in the publishing business? Eating and mortgages. Uh, <laughs> but clearly you you had sort of crossed the threshold of working with an established publisher. So th- creating your own company to do effectively the same is a huge leap. So wh- why was it that you decided that you wanted to do that again? Well, fundamentally, we were not sure what they were adding to the process. So they would be taking a massive percentage, I think, our royalties on the books we published through them were between, I believe, 14 to 18%. And so the rest went to them, and that went to you know all the other stuff that they did. Uh, I don't begrudge them that. I mean, that's their business model. But given that we somewhat naively felt that we could take a book from idea to printing press – we said, well, I mean, what do we need them for? I mean, after all, and we, we actually explicitly said the world's stupidest sentence, which is, how hard could it be? That was going to be my next question. So how, yeah. hard, so how hard was it? It was not hard because both of us really enjoyed learning. And neither of us are afraid of mistakes because we made just about every mistake there was to make. But that's okay. So neither of us actually knew anything at all about the publishing industry, and I think that was our salvation. Uh, We designed the company as if it was a software company, and so we used all of the same practices that we talked about in Pragmatic Programmer when we were creating the company. So everything was automated, 
Uh, everything had tests. I mean, the rule was if you ever found yourself doing anything more than twice, then it had to be automated. We were agile in that you know, we would basically make our mistakes, fix them, and move on. And we also had a, a, a very agile business model. Arguably, that was a mistake, but our idea was that we were going to be 100% self-funding. And so we would always keep a positive cash flow. We would always have enough in the bank to be able to survive, you know, the lean times. And that meant that we could take risks. Okay, so because we organized our royalties and our payments to all our various people as a percentage of sales, then we could take on a book. And if it didn't sell that well, it didn't actually take the company down. Instead, it just meant that we all took a, a, a share of a smaller pie. And so we got to the point where it was actually at our, at our most efficient, we could actually break even on a book if it sold about five, 600 copies. Wow. And that was fantastic because really it meant that we could say yes uh, a lot more often and we could take risks and go into areas that other publishers weren't in yet because, you know, there wasn't a market for them. And so that was one of our strengths, I think, is that we had that, that very lean structure. And that was also one of our weaknesses in a way because we would tend to turn down stuff that was non-standard for us. So we had our tool chain and all of our books were in exactly the same format and they were all under source control and everything else. And that was, for our point of view, phenomenal because it meant that creating a printable version of a book literally was a single command and it would just pop the thing up and it would appear on the, on the printing company's you know, inbox kind of thing and away it would go. It was kind of funny. I was in a conference in New York City, the first and only time I'd been to a publishing conference. And some guy was up on stage and he said, you know, we can get a book ready to go to print in about a week. And meanwhile, I was sitting in the audience and I actually had a Wi-Fi connection and I actually sent a couple of our books up, you know, while he was talking. Um, gutsy just, move. Well, no, not gutsy. It was just we had you know, we had, we had the capability of doing that. It was all automated. Right. Um, and so we did that, but it also meant that we would turn down things where the author required something outside our, our standard set of capabilities. I mean, we designed the tool chain to work uh, via plugins. So you could always add extra capabilities to it as you went along, but sometimes the things were just like too extreme to be able to do. And so, and Every time we tried to do something outside that box, it would come back and bite us because we really were not set up. We didn't have the extra people floating around to be able to handle those things. Do you believe that you were leaders in this field of treating books more like software than literature? Because that seems to be quite commonplace these days. I'm thinking of some of the competitors to the Pragmatic Bookshelf do things in what externally appears to be the same way. But do you believe that you really pioneered this whole notion of software rather than literature? I... I don't know enough to say we pioneered it, but I, I was not aware of anybody else doing it. I think we, we pioneered, well, okay, we did a, a number of things that our immediate competitors did not do until after we did it. So the idea of everything being stored in a, a central repository, the idea of having a continuous build system that would build the books for the authors if they didn't have the tools locally, the idea of using the same source to typeset the book as opposed to converting it into FrameMaker. I think we were pretty much the first to do that. 
the idea of using the same source later to create EPUBs and Mobis, you know, for the various e-readers. Mm-hmm. The idea of every single book that we printed. And remember, back when we started, everybody had printed books. And the idea of e-books only came along later. So we were probably, I think, the first publisher that had every single one of our titles available as an e-book. Well, and, and I got a kick out of the fact that as a customer of yours, I would get updates for the book. I, yes. buy, I, I would buy the PDF or the Mobi or the some sort of digital version of the book, and then lo and behold, for no additional cost, I would get the next version. I just that's, thought that was the coolest thing. And that's because our tool chain makes, lets us do that, right? So, I mean, when technology moves fast, then a good author is going to want to keep their book up to date. And in the past, that's always meant a new edition, which meant the whole cycle starts again, and it's a nine-month process and everything else. With us, if it's like a relatively minor change, you just change it inside the existing framework and just publish a new ebook. If it's a big change, then the printing rules or the, the copyright industry rules pretty much mean that we have to create a new ISBN for it. Mm-hmm. But even then, uh, we've got that down to a, you know, a single command that will basically clone the book into a new repository, update all the various ISBN stuff, and then you make your changes in there. And then our online system automatically allows us to create uh, free upgrades. So other than the unusual and innovative way of getting a book out the door, what other things distinguished the Pragmatic Bookshelf from other publishers at the time? I think fundamentally we published what we wanted to read. So Andy and I were both programmers, and so we chose subjects that were interesting to us you'll find that we were never into, like, enterprise Java and that kind of stuff. I and mean, we have a couple of titles that cover it, but they typically do it from a slightly different perspective. I mean, one of the better books that we've ever published was a book called Release It, uh, Mike Nygaard's book. And that was quite enterprisey, but it was really, it was cooler because it talked about how to do it without being enterprisey, you know? So that was a fantastic book. But typically, we would avoid that kind of stuff. We would concentrate on the things that sounded like fun. We had a lot of friends who we hit up to write books because we liked them and we knew that they were good at what they did. So I think that was a, uh, one of the things that made us different. The, the other thing that made us different, I think, is that um, fairly early on, we, we, when we started getting editors involved... We had to give them guidance on, you know, how you edit our books. And we really didn't have any idea how we did it. We just kind of like, you know, followed our gut. So we spent some time analyzing what we did. And we worked out that what we were doing was creating a narrative for the reader. So the reader joins the book as some kind of novice and leading a kind of everyday life. And by the time they finish the book, we want them to be proficient. Uh, We want them to have moved up. And so we came up with this uh, structure of uh, our books following the kind of John Campbell hero's journey. Mm -hmm. And it turned out to be very, very effective. The editors love it because it tells them how to structure the voicing of the book as it goes along. At the very beginning of our books, you'll find they're incredibly directive. They'll say to the reader, do this, do that, do the other. Because at the beginning of the book, the reader is a novice and really has no choice but to be told what to do. But as the reader gets more experience as they go through the book, the tone becomes more and more collegial and more and more laid back. As And it turns from you do to we do. And 
that's very much more inclusive. And then at the end, the reader is kind of like launched onto their way with this feeling of confidence because they've been through this progression, been through this journey. This harkens back to your early work um, where you were working with dysfunctional teams and and starting off by being directive. And then as they grew grew in their skills, they became more self-sufficient and, like you say, a little bit more collegial. So it sounds like your early experience was brought to bear directly on the way you approached your editorial responsibilities. Yeah, I think it's actually a very common thing that a lot of people do intuitively. There's a a model called the uh, Dreyfus model of skills acquisition that was produced by two brothers who analyzed how pilots got their experience. And they discovered, or actually more accurately, why pilots were not learning more advanced skills for the Air Force. And they discovered the the reason was that as you progress through this kind of spectrum from being a novice to being an expert, you change what you need to learn. So as you're a novice, you need to be told what to do. Right? If it's the very first time you've jumped out of an airplane, you don't really care about Bernoulli's principle and aerodynamics. All you want to know is what do I pull and when. But after you become more experienced, then suddenly you have this background and experience to be able to integrate facts together. And so you don't want to be told what to do all the time. Instead, you want to be able to experiment and learn for yourself. So to some extent, you need to be told what it is to be successful. And then you have to go out and find it. And then once you get to be you know, something of an expert, what they found that was really interesting to me is that people stop thinking about what they're doing. And it becomes tacit. It becomes kind of subconscious. And that's the experience that we all have when we drive. I mean, quite often, you know, I will drive to the store and not actually remember doing the drive. You know, I'll just be there. And I think that's because my subconscious is handling all of the details for me. And only it kind of invokes me consciously, you know, on certain exceptional conditions. And that's the same when you're walking. You know, you don't sit there and think about, I have to move this muscle, I have to move that muscle. You say, hey, I'm going to go to the fridge. And that's the way that people progress up through learning. And at the end, you have these masters who are, like I say, working largely from intuition. That's the code kata concept in which you have been involved. That's what I try to do. It's, yeah, the idea of practicing a problem over and over is a really great way of internalizing it. Back in the 70s, there was this craze for inner sport, right? Very West Coast thing. But apparently it worked. So as an example, if you were learning to serve uh, at tennis, right, the inner tennis way of learning to serve would be you you stood at the uh, baseline with a laundry basket full of tennis balls, and the teacher would place a chair on the court on the other side. And the teacher would say, okay, do not hit the chair. Just hit balls over the net and then say out loud, is that ball to the left of the chair, to the right of the chair, in front of it or behind it, right? And so the student would sit there and hit a couple of hundred tennis balls over the net, doing nothing more than saying left, back, right, front, whatever it might be. Then, you know, after they got down pretty much to the bottom of the, of the bag, the, the instructor would say, okay, now hit the chair. And the student would be able to hit it every time. Hmm. And the idea is that by using different pathways to record your experience. So in this case, you are speaking out loud, not just thinking. 
And you're also hearing yourself speak. So you're kind of using three separate ways of recording your experience. You're digging that experience deep into your brain. You're never going to manually control all the muscles that are required to serve a tennis ball. But if you can associate a movement with a location that the ball ends up hitting, then you've got control. And that was the theory of it. And apparently it works. Using whatever hard metrics you like, can you give listeners a sense of how the Pragmatic Bookshelf grew over the years? You started out with zero. And where, where did things wind up? Well, for the first, you know, minute, we grew infinitely. Mm. Uh, let's <laughs> think. We grew very nicely. It wasn't like meteoric. Um, part of that was because of this idea to be self-funding. But we grew comfortably year after year. When uh, Rails came along and we had the Ruby book and I got the Rails book out, that kind of like kicked us into overdrive for a while. So we, we grew up dramatically at that point. And then things kind of like evened out and we can maintain a steady growth uh, over the years. Over the last, oh, I don't know, four years, three years, something, that growth has slowed. And part of the reason for that is the underlying book industry is dying, basically. Yeah. It's, uh, the figures in the States are scary. If you look at overall book sales, uh, they're going down by about 20% per annum compound. That's going off a cliff, basically. It really is. It yeah. really is. Yeah. Um, and uh, partly that's because, you know, people associate books with paper. And partly it's because I think the attention span required to read a book is just too long nowadays. You know, people are used to 15-minute uh, YouTube clips you know, that teach them how to do X. And the idea of spending four or five hours or 10 hours reading a book is just like, I don't need that. Now, whether that's a wise thing or not, I don't know. But I think that's what's happening. So with all of these alternative delivery platforms that are available, so much of the stock and trade of the pragmatic bookshelf was this notion of a book. What do you believe the future of the book is going to be? Well, I don't think it's a question of what the future of the book is going to be as much as how do we create a vehicle that allows someone to communicate with somebody else long form. I think technical books are pretty much obsolete now. And I think the idea of a long-form technical book, there's, there's momentum behind it, but it really is going to struggle. Technical books are going to change to be far more componentized, so you can pick just the stuff that you want and apply it far more multimedia and hopefully far more interactive. So we're going to see the equivalent of like a YouTube clip, but that teaches you how to do a Git checkout with examples and exercises and everything else. I think that's the way technical stuff is going to go. What I'm really worried about is long-form fiction, because it would be a total and absolute disaster if we were to lose the ability as a society to create 400-page novels because that is where so much of our richness has been stored over the years. And to stop producing that, I cannot think of another way of getting that much information crammed into that smaller volume. 
I want to explore that a little bit more, but just anecdotally is that that when I'm buying technical books, I buy them digitally because I want to be able to search them and find facts. Every year I go and spend some time on the beach with my wife and we do very little other than to read. And exclusively we take books that are still printed on paper. So I, I can really relate to what you're saying in that there's still nothing quite like reading a real page turner that you can't get through fast enough because you're so interested about the content. But are, are you genuinely concerned that, that there's a generation coming up now that doesn't have the patience for a 400-page book? Yes, I, I genuinely am. It's not universal, obviously. But, I mean, when I was a kid, this, this is going to do the old, you know, I'm an old fart kind of thing, <laughs> blah, 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 right? When I was a boy... Yeah. Uh, but yeah, when I was a kid, I used to go to our local library, and uh, it wasn't a big library, but I used to take out as many as they'd let me take out at a time, and I would read them in that week, and then bring them back and take out the next lot. And it would be typically, you know, I'd go through phases, so I'd like, I'd, they had maybe two racks of science fiction books, and I pretty much read every single one of them, you know, over time. Or I'd go through the, the nonfiction, the science section, or whatever else. But, you know, I would read because it was just a phenomenal way of relaxing, of building pictures in my head. And I still do it for that reason. My kids don't do that. They very rarely, well, sorry, my youngest boy very, very rarely will pick up a book and just read it for pleasure. Uh, my oldest boy didn't used to. And then he went to a liberal arts college, uh, which ran a great books program where all of the learning is done by reading the original books. And so he has now outstripped me by far in terms of the number of, of classic books that he has read. And that has changed him a lot. And I think it's a shame that more people don't get an experience like that. I can really relate. And I can remember, I think we were in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho or somewhere like that. And there was a big to-do at the local bookstore, which we just couldn't quite comprehend. And then we realized it was around the time of the release of one of the Harry Potter books. And one part of you, the curmudgeon, says, how silly can this possibly be, people standing there at midnight to get a book? And then we thought about it for a while and said, isn't that wonderful? That even if it's a Harry Potter book, right, I mean, think what you want about them, is that people were standing in line to read a book. Exactly. Exactly. That's the end of this second part of our three-part interview with Dave Thomas, co-founder and publisher emeritus of The Pragmatic Bookshelf. In part three, we talk with Dave about his life after retiring. We start with his thoughts on agile, both as a noun and as an adjective, as well as the value of spoken and written language in the digital age. We talk about society's relationship with the book, both here in North America and abroad, and also talk about whether there is a future for bookstores as we know them today. We wrap up with what Dave is planning next, as well as ask him what advice he can offer the next generation coming up. Oh yes, and we finally get to the bottom of what's up with that garden gnome. Be sure not to miss the final part of the interview by subscribing to the Work Not Work Show podcast on iTunes or by following Work Not Work on Twitter. The Work Not Work Show is written, produced, and hosted by me, Terence C. Gannon, and is wholly owned by Interlog Inc. of Calgary, Alberta, Canada. All rights are reserved. Our theme music is Working for Friday and from the Lionfish Music Group located in beautiful Brooklyn, New York. Finally, thank you, our audience, for supporting Work Not Work, the show about people who have turned their passion into a profession. Mm -hmm.